Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in this episode is Cameron Brooks. A few weeks ago, we devoted a segment of the commentary to my upcoming trip to Washington, D.C. for the Bible Craftsmanship Conference. And now that the event has taken place, we're going to offer a recap hitting some of the highlights from the launch of the Society of Bible Craftsmanship. This episode of The Commentary is coming out at a really exciting time for Grace because this weekend we will be resuming Sunday school for the fall. Our small groups are getting going again in earnest, although some have been meeting over the summer as well. We have youth group firing up. A lot of exciting stuff is going on, but we're going to take a little bit of time here to talk about something that's already happened just because we alluded to what was about to take place earlier in the commentary. Um, I thought it'd be good to give a little recap of Pastor Mark's visit to Washington, D.C. for the event at the Museum of the Bible, the Bible Craftsmanship Conference, where I was a speaker and where a new institution, the Society of Bible Craftsmanship, was officially founded. So that took place on August 27th, and it was a fantastic experience. And I wish that all of you listening had been able to be with me there in Washington, D.C. for that launch, because not only was it an exciting event, but it was hosted inside the Museum of the Bible, which is an incredible place for anyone who loves scripture, uh, just full of so much wonderful stuff that it was hard for me to tear myself away. So say a little more. I've never been there. I've wanted to go. I've had a few friends that said they had a good time, but what exactly does one see at the Museum of the Bible? Oh, that's actually a great question. I had never been there before. So this is my first time. And I was curious about that because same experience. I've talked to people who said, oh, yeah, it's great. But interestingly, when they told me what it was they liked about it, it wasn't necessarily what I would have thought. So I actually spoke to someone right before I was leaving who said, oh, I love the Museum of the Bible. And the best part's definitely not the old Bibles. And I was kind of shocked, you know, I was like, wait a second, of course, that's got to be the best part. Yeah. But she was saying, no, I, I love the interactive exhibit. And, and I couldn't even imagine what that was, what kind of interactive exhibit. Uh, for me, interactive exhibit would be they, they open up the museum case and let you touch the, the Gutenberg Bible or something. But the Museum of the Bible has a mission not only to curate, you know, past examples of the Bible, but also to communicate and share the message of the Bible, to make it accessible to all sorts of people, all sorts of different segments of the population. So when you go through the museum, you actually have on each floor a, a different kind of experience. So 
The fourth floor is the floor that I spent the most time on. And on the fourth floor, you have basically the history of physical Bibles from ancient stella, you know, memorial stones and old, you know, scrolls and papyrus through illuminated manuscripts, the first codexes, you know, that we would recognize as books, uh, and then eventually printed Bibles, and then the history of the printed Bible. So as you circle the floor, you're almost walking the timeline from Dead Sea Scrolls to modern day editions of the Bible and seeing all of the major developments every step of the way. You know, you're looking in glass cases, you're seeing old books and exhibits related to them. And, and there's fun stuff. You know, if you're, you're walking by these alcoves and suddenly there's Jerome talking to you about the Vulgate. Yeah. Or here's Tyndale talking to you about his translation of the Bible into English, that sort of thing. But the focus is on the, the physical form of the Bible. But you go to other floors and you have more traditional museum exhibits. So there was a museum from... Um, like a collection, I guess, from the Vatican Museum that was on loan. There was another exhibit that had to do with, you know, ancient Near Eastern culture and, and, and people. There was also a fun area where they recreated like a version of the city of Nazareth as it would have been in Jesus's day. Wow. And you can wander through the various parts of town. You know, you're kind of walking along and it's like, okay, here's somebody's house and you can walk inside and there's food on the table and, and then you can go next door and maybe there's a, a, a press where they're making olive oil and then you go next door and there's a little synagogue. And so I actually walked into the synagogue and there was a, a reenactor who came up to me as a first century citizen of Nazareth and, and said, do you know what the synagogue is for? And I had one of those moments where you're like, do I tell him what I know or do I feign <laughs> ignorance and let him kind of do his thing? And I feigned ignorance and, and just wanted to hear the whole presentation. And it was really fascinating. So mm. not what I was expecting to encounter, right. but you can see what they're trying to do is, is, create an experience that draws people into the stories of scripture, the history of scripture, all of those different aspects. And so as a result, there's actually a lot more happening at the museum of the Bible than, you know, a museum where they show old Bibles, right. even though the idea of such a museum to me is utterly fascinating. <laughs> but so, so if, you, if you're not a person who wants to stare at old medieval manuscripts there's still a lot for you to do at the museum. Well, you you said they're trying to create an experience to help people get into the stories and the text of the Bible. And I feel like, in a sense, that's what you've been trying to do with a large part of your career in a different way, you know, through, yes. through the design and the physicality of, of the Bible. So that is apropos, I suppose. I'm curious if you could say more about the conference in general sure what is what is going on at the high level and then if you could talk a little bit about what this new society of yours is up to yeah so it's a little complicated as i said so we <laughs> met at the museum of the bible 
to hold a conference called the Bible Craftsmanship Conference. And at that conference, we launched the Society of Bible Craftsmanship. So there's the location, the museum, there's the conference that took place, and then there's the society that we launched as part of that. And all of that going on together is focused on Bible craftsmanship. And by craftsmanship, we're talking about design and production of the Bible. So the scope is pretty broad, but it's also a focus on something that I think at the museum isn't usually what people are focused on. You know, typically they're focused on the content and the form in the sense of its development, but not so much the design choices that went into it and that sort of thing. So it was an interesting opportunity for the museum to start looking at their collection with these design and, and production questions more in the forefront. And then the speakers at the event came in and, and discussed different aspects of that question. So if I walk you through the day, it might give you kind of a sense for the, the highlights. So the event began in the morning at 10 a.m. with a museum tour. And the museum tour took place on this fourth floor that I was just describing, where you walk through the history of the Bible from you know, papyrus to print. Hmm. So one of the curators there, Amy Van Dyke, led this tour, and it was a tour that had never been done before at the museum, specifically with this focus on design and how the process of production might have influenced choices that were made all along the way. So starting off obviously with papyrus and and the nature of the material that would influence how the you know the book is formed. I, I think probably the the biggest thing for um, the average person would be to realize that originally the Bible was not in the form of a book that would be recognizable to us. It would have been in scrolls, but not, in a a book you could flip through, a codex, that came later. And the development of the codex is something that actually happens kind of hand-in-hand with the growth of Christianity. I mean, there's some people who believe that the need to have a Bible, you know, accessible the way the Bible is, drove the popularity of the codex as a form. So Mm -hmm. you have that sort of physical development, and that influences how scripture is going to be organized, how it's going to be written out, uh, how much of it you can have in, in one place. And then eventually, fascinatingly to me, we get to a period in time where suddenly they're putting the whole Bible together in one cover. So in the 1200s, there's a a period where there are these pocket Bibles that they have that are associated with the Sorbonne, you know, in Paris, where the theological students are getting these Bibles that have the whole Bible in one cover, super small, uh, and yet they have wide margins for very fine note-taking in the margins. And, And this is where something like what we would recognize as the Bible of today emerges. Right before this, you probably wouldn't have had the whole Bible in in a single cover. You would have had portions of it, mm. uh, pieces of it, but not the whole thing all together like that. 
and that's before print. Right. You know, that's several hundred years before uh, printed Bibles become the norm. Right. So even then, if you had one Bible and, and you know, one cover, it's not like it's distributed widely to the people. It's, it's a rare thing to exactly, have Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so when you think about these Bibles, these first pocket Bibles, you know, they are still being copied by hand. So there's mm-hmm. some scribe who's creating this book and it is incredible to look at today because they're so well produced and they're on uh, vellum, you know, so, so they're, they're kind of it, it, hard to imagine, but, but they almost feel newer than something that was printed, you know, hundreds of years later because the materials are just so incredible, you know, and, and long lasting. But, but yeah, so eventually you get to printed Bibles and the development of various typefaces and different kinds of designs to accommodate different items. I mean, there was a lot of fascinating stuff that, that I learned for the first time on that tour. But, but one thing that really stuck in my mind thinking about those wide margins, which are there for note-taking, because theological students would transcribe the lectures of their professors into the margins of their Bibles. And so that's one rationale for having these big margins. But another one was that these books are frequently rebound. And so when they are made, there's an extra allowance for the page the same way that clothes might have a seam allowance so that you can let them out or take them in, you know, that sort of thing. And so in the way that the the book is manufactured, there's this thoughtfulness about how it might be used in the future. So that's how we spent our morning. And honestly that alone was worth the price of admission, you know, being able to see these, these ancient examples and think about the development of the craft of the Bible and how Bibles were made over time was really great. But we came back in the afternoon and and there were three main sessions. So first Klaus Krog, who is a type designer and Bible designer from Denmark. He runs an incredible design firm, 2K Denmark he did a presentation that was on the development of letter forms over time. So there's a, uh, a thing, I think, it, at least in typography, that, that's a known thing, that, that pictograms and, and even cave paintings of oxen become the letter A over time, or Aleph in the, mm. in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but what Klaus did was start with cave paintings, actually started with creation, with Adam in the garden, and then moves his way forward talking about language and the development of language and how the letter forms changed over time. And as a typographer, of course, that's, that is uh, something he's utterly fascinated with. But the, the, the really interesting part was the way that he told this story and kind of mapped onto it that idea from Galatians of the, the fullness of time. You know, we talk about Christ coming, the fullness of time. Oftentimes people say, well, you know, yeah, like the Roman empire uh, allowed this to be the right time for Christianity to emerge. Well, strangely, something very similar to that happens with the development of the alphabet, hmm. that there's a, a process over time by which the, the letters that we use and recognize today are developed 
and they reach their apotheosis at the time of the Roman Empire, the the uh, Trajan's Column. You know, the the inscriptions on that. That typeface is still a modern typeface called Trajan, <laughs> and it is perhaps the most popular typeface for all sorts of applications where dignity is required. Okay. Certainly in Washington, D.C., looking at all the monuments, I was running into Trajan everywhere. Well, now I'm curious, does Times New Roman have any history like that because oh, of its name? <laughs> good question. So uh, Roman, in that sense, is is a different reference, I believe. Okay. It's, it's um, more to do with, with Roman or Romanesque typefaces as opposed to like black letter or something like sure. that. I think off the top of my head, yeah. that's right. But, um, but yeah, so what's interesting about this, though, is, of course, Trajan, as you would experience it in the Roman Empire, is all uppercase. And so the second part of the story is the development of lowercase mm-hmm. letters and, and getting those things together and so he traced both of those and then gave them this kind of interesting fuller sense of of not just their historical significance but also a, a providential hmm. superintendence of it all so so that was a fascinating and and also very charming lecture klaus has a great sense of humor and is very passionate and endearing in his presentation so that was fantastic um Second presentation was Dr. David Price, and he is a Vanderbilt professor, profound scholar, expert on uh, printed Bibles in English in the Renaissance, uh, as well as other things. But his uh, recent book is, in the beginning was The Image, and it's about the Bible in the Renaissance, but he's got a history of publishing in this area. Uh, his wife does as well. Um, they both collaborated in, uh, together with uh, Yaroslav Pelikan on a book about the Bible in English in the Reformation. And uh, and yeah, so a wealth of information. Um, I That lecture was incredible. But just hanging out with them, spending you know time outside the... The, the conference area was incredible as well. But in his presentation, interestingly, he focused on early Reformation, German Reformation Bibles uh, associated with uh, Cranach and Hans Holbein. So these are Bibles that I'm not nearly as familiar with as, as like the later touchstones. You think like the Geneva Bible mm-hmm. or the King James Bible, the English language stuff. Uh, this is more focused on Martin Luther's Bible, but at this time, they're making decisions that will influence the course of future events. And he gave an interesting insight into the way that the beliefs of the printers, the kind of the, the polemics, shaped some of the presentation that went into it. And a um, lot, of, lot of interesting stuff and and. I'm not competent to plumb the depths of it, but, but one anecdote that I found utterly fascinating. So in a lot of Cronach's stuff, there's open ridicule of the papacy. Mm. They they associate uh, the, the papacy with the whore of Babylon. And so they, they illustrate these scenes from the Bible with Roman Catholic papal imagery. And, uh, 
you know, you, you can imagine how incendiary this would have been. And yet, once they had printed those, they would take the wood blocks, the, the artwork, cut the tiara off of their Pope Whore of Babylon artwork, and sell that portion to the Roman Catholic printers <laughs> who could then use it to print, you know, papal encyclicals and things like that. Uh, yeah. So, so there was just this fascinating cross pollination going on during the period that, uh, that, that really, I don't know, gives, gives some interesting insight into the development of, of printing and, and Bibles in the early Renaissance. Hmm. So, and then I was the final speaker and, okay. and I, spoke more about the development of modern Bibles and, and specifically the, the contrast between 20 years ago and today. And that naturally kind of segued into a discussion of what our hopes for the society of Bible craftsmanship are, which has to do with essentially fostering the good stuff that's happening today and promoting better craftsmanship for tomorrow. Hmm. You know, uh, to put it in a nutshell, I, I do think we're living in a golden age right now of Bible publishing, but every golden age comes to an end. And so we're hoping that with some good stewardship and some celebration of the good stuff, raising some awareness, educating people about uh, what makes a good Bible and, and, and really how good we have it right now, that we can actually go beyond what we now experience and, and have um, much of this, we hope, stick around. Hmm. Well, that all sounds truly fascinating. I, is that conference yearly, an annual thing? or? Yeah, so we will have our next live, you know, in-person conference in April. Okay. And what will happen between now and then is we will accept submissions from publishers and give awards on Bible craftsmanship that'll be announced at the April event. Mm. So when you attend the event in April, not only will you be able to, you know, be present for the announcement of the awards and hear some, some more great presentations, but all of the exhibits will be on display there. Mm. So, in a sense, a snapshot of Bible publishing as it exists in April 2023 will be on display for everyone who attends to actually physically come to terms with. So all of these great Bibles from around the world, all these different publishers, our goal is to have all of that together, the stuff that, that we're awarding, but also just all of the entries, You know, whether they get awards or not, everything there on display to give a real tangible sense of what's going on. And so that's going to be in April, but before that there's going to be a series of virtual events. Mm-hmm. So our next virtual event is going to take place in November and that's going to get more into the society and kind of explain the the vision and mission of the society and we'll do a subsequent event that talks about uh, the nuts and bolts of craftsmanship, what makes a quality bible. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a series of those kinds of educational events in the seasons between the big conferences. So if any listeners are say interested in joining the society, is that a possibility? Absolutely. Yeah. We we want to encourage not only um, membership in 
you know, the, the industry, so publishers and, you know, interested parties in the, in the overall sort of production and design of Bibles, but also in the general public. There are a lot of people today who are interested in the design of good Bibles, who've discovered this passion for the Bible. And so we are uh, really serious about helping connect the general public with this appreciation of Bible craftsmanship. And part of that is, is just creating content for a general audience and also bringing that general audience into the society. So, so yes, absolutely. You mentioned before we started recording that you're still working on a website, I think, but where else can listeners go to learn more? a, A couple of places you can go. So, the Society's website will be on the Museum of the Bible page. Um, that is, at this point of our recording, a work in progress that's supposed to happen at, at any day now. Okay. Uh, you can also go to lectio.org, which is my website where I write about Bible design, and I've posted a number of updates with information about all of this stuff. And so... Uh, and we'll be doing more of that in the future. So if you're interested in kind of figuring out more about this stuff, those are both good places to visit. Well, I'm personally proud <laughs> to to call you my pastor and friend and to know that you've you've really accomplished this this wonderful thing. Going to the the conference, yes, of course, but also just all the work that you've done in the in, you know in the last couple of decades. So really grateful for everything you've done. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. This was a a surreal and very rewarding event yeah. because if you had told me, you know, 20 years ago that there was going to be a Museum of the Bible, let alone that there was going to be an event like this at the Museum of the Bible and that they would let me in, uh, I don't know what I would have thought about all that. But it was truly an honor to be there and to participate. Uh, the people involved in this are just incredible people with a passion for the Bible and I am really excited to see what the future of the society looks like. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.